0: Airline's confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Prattwhitney.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines, and Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
1: Welcome to this week's Fantasy Flight on Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and I want to thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to an interesting chat with Robert Sumwalt, the immediate past chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, in just a bit. Ben, you there?
2: Hey, Chris, and hello to all the listeners. I hope everyone had a good week. We've got lots to cover, so Chris, let's get started with some news.
1: Ben, let's first transport ourselves to Europe for a moment. After a very busy summer, Ryanair is catching its breath. It's in the midst of adding, or in some cases reinstating, 250 routes from mid-October to mid-November across 116 cities and 34 countries, and they've got more growth planned. Meanwhile, Hungarian competitor Wizz Air is not as optimistic, warning that the industry is growing too rapidly. So which is it, Bendy Locks? Is it too hot or too cold?
2: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. You know, the Ryanair approach is kind of like what we're seeing in the U.S., in their earnings call, Spirit announced they're going to grow 30% next year. That's a lot of growth, even though they're a smaller airline than some, but they're not that small anymore. So 30% is still a lot of growth. And two new airlines starting, as we've talked about in the U.S., so the low-cost carriers are being very aggressive in the U.S., as we've mentioned on this podcast <laughs> multiple times. Um So Ryanair is sort of taking a page out of that book. They're probably looking at the long haul importance of airlines like British Airways and Lufthansa and Air France and think, hey, this is time for us to get even bigger share of the the European... Domestic market, if you want to call it domestic, you know the EU region, the Schengen region, things like that, and uh, they're being very aggressive in using their cost structure, you know, weaponizing that cost structure in a way. Now, on the Wizz Air case, I think it's interesting that they sort of put that warning out. Now, Wiz's route network is a little different than Ryan's; they serve more Eastern European points. You know, with markets in the Ukraine and Poland and Hungary and such, a lot of their flights bring workers from those areas into London as well as other things. So when they look at their set of markets, they may see things around COVID vaccine rollout or other economic trends that gives them pause whereas Ryanair looking at more the bigger countries, the Germanys, the Frances, the UKs, and others might say, be more optimistic. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's possible that they are just responding to what each of them are seeing, because both of them are very low cost airlines, and both of them have a cost structure that allows them to be aggressive with growth. And so if Wizz Air isn't Quite as optimistic as Ryan, it seems to me they must be seeing something in their network that maybe Ryan isn't seeing in their network. Could it be that simple, Chris? Uh, I think
1: there's a a bit of that, and that I do think that European or or Eastern European vaccination rates trail what's mostly the Ryanair market in, in Northern and Western Europe. I'm always uncomfortable when one company talks, especially in the airline business, one one airline talks broadly about industry capacity and industry growth. I'm the believer, you know, Wizz Air, you do you and let Ryanair do them. And, you know, commenting across the industry and trying to send signals about what you might think is, is relevant isn't really relevant in the context of the only thing you control is your capacity and your growth. And so you can't do anything about the rest and trying to tell others not to grow as fast isn't uh, the right competitive framework that I think should exist. So, you know, there might be too much growth for Wizair, like you said, but they should focus on their company and other companies have an obligation to focus on theirs.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. They're both good companies. And they're both very low cost companies and they compete in regions where there is no Southwest, right? Meaning no sort of middle cost carrier. The carriers they compete against have the kind of international global cost structures of a Delta or United and such. And the low cost airlines in the U.S. still have to compete with Southwest, who's pretty efficient.
1: Yep. So then let's come back across the Atlantic, but south of the U.S. border. Brazilian carrier Azul has made, or reports are, that they're making something of a hostile bid for LATAM, proposing a plan to the bankruptcy court overseeing the LATAM case that they would essentially acquire that airline if creditors cannot agree on a restructuring plan. So do you think that this going public pushes the creditors to a deal, or are some of them preferring to see a sync up with the David Nealman-led Azul?
2: I think this is a fascinating issue going on in Latin America, and it, it brings up one of the realities of bankruptcy. In the airline business, airlines, certainly in the U.S., have successfully used bankruptcy to change their cost structures, get better deals on airplanes, essentially outsource some of their retiree expenses to the U.S. government, right, a number of things that have been positive to the financials of the airline. But what doesn't get talked about that much, at least in the public realm, is the fact that you don't have full control of what happens in bankruptcy. So David Nealman stepping up and while Latam's in bankruptcy and saying, hey, if you guys don't reach a deal, Maybe we could put Azul together with you guys and we could run all this. And I'm sure that was something that LATAM wasn't thinking about when they went into bankruptcy, but now they have to deal with it. And David Nealman has been a very successful leader of airlines. Obviously, he's a little busy starting breeze here in the U.S. now, right? But at the same time, I would think there are some creditors who would say that LATAM might have a better chance if it had a real efficient airline like Azul in Brazil attached to all the other things that are LATAM and a name like David Nealman associated with all that. Whereas others might think, well, that might have us lose some of the control that we, the LATAM directors and management used to have. So maybe we don't want it to go that way. I think it's a fascinating thing going on there, but it wouldn't surprise me If it does both things that you say, meaning it might push creditors to do a deal because the most of them don't want that sort of hookup, or it might push them to say, no, that's our preferred choice. So we're not only going to not push to do a deal, we're going to push to do that deal. And I think we could see either one of those and a lot of it's going to come down to what the creditors believe is the best outcome for LATAM as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think there's some interesting melodrama that's going to play out. Um, what's Delta going to do? I mean, how does this fit into the, the natural evolution of the three major alliances since Azul's still independent but cooperates uh, with, with Star at some level or some of the Star Carriers? So there's a lot to watch, and uh, I'm sure our listeners and geeks everywhere are going to be thinking about what's what's going to happen next. Well, before we get back to the news, thanks to our friends at Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. With 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com.
2: And we also want to thank CLEAR, who makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of CLEAR, and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use CLEAR's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, CLEAR's signature airport experience helps you move seamlessly through security. Where will you go? Get back out there with CLEAR.
1: And then, Ben, uh, I'm out in California right now and looking at these $5 gas prices, Uh, so this question seems kind of apropos here. As we're all watching gas prices rise at the pump, no matter where you are in the U.S., more people are starting to eye jet fuel prices, which have increased, but certainly not at the trajectory of consumer gas prices. Do these current market circumstances encourage more fuel hedging, do you think, by the major carriers or do the major airlines continue to hold steady on the open market for a while?
2: It's a great question, Chris. Most of our listeners probably know that one of the reasons that avjet prices don't track gasoline prices as much is gasoline is a much more refined fuel. So it costs more to produce gasoline from oil than it does to produce jet fuel from oil. And so- those things don't match. In fact, when airlines hedge, they often hedge against another lesser refined oil, like maybe heating oil or something like that. And that's why I think those two things aren't linked that much. But in terms of whether it convinces more airlines to hedge, airlines have benefited from hedging, most notably Southwest for many years, but they've also got burned by hedging. And I think what has happened is that airlines have figured out that their real exposure on fuel price is about a 90-day exposure. And the reason I say 90 days is that's the bulk of the booking curve that airlines see. Most bookings for flights happen within 90 days of the flight. Certainly, there are people booked to fly next Christmas somewhere, right? But, But those are few and far between. And so... You know, if an airline sells you a ticket for a flight in a few months and then the fuel price ramps up really quickly, they can't go to you and say, well, you have to pay us more money because we're going to spend more fuel to get you there. So they eat that difference. And so that's really the risk. When airlines have thought of hedging, they often hedged far out, maybe five quarters or so, almost hedging for their liquidity You know, make sure they don't go out of business as opposed to that they're managing sort of earnings and such. And But I think what airlines have learned is that outside of 90 days, they can adjust capacity. They can adjust where the planes go, frequency. They can adjust prices, you know, quickly enough with fuel changes that but for maybe the next 90 days, they react enough. And so given that, I don't think that the current fuel price volatility is going to necessarily create more hedging, which brings a lot more risk into the airline situation. And it's really kind of a different business. It's a commodity speculation game. And they're in the business of flying airplanes. Now, obviously, if they can help to manage what is a high piece of their cost structure, the fuel, that's a good thing. But I really think the industry has figured out that it's a very localized short-term risk. And therefore, even if they do hedge, it would be a relatively minor, close-in sort of protection rather than thinking about, do I try to lock in prices for years? That's my sense.
1: Yeah, it used to be such a uh, hot topic even on quarterly calls, it, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent and it also just doesn't seem to be the priority like you laid out, Ben, in the context of the industry's done so many other things to take out risk and to strengthen balance sheets to kind of ride through difficult times like they've done the last 18 months or so. So like we say, we'll have to watch that space, but I don't see it coming back like it, it was 15 years ago.
2: We'll be right back with our conversation with Robert Sumwalt.
0: Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from the archive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding.
1: It's our real pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Robert Sumwalt, recently retired as chair of the National Transportation Safety Board here in the U.S., and also a former colleague of Ben and I at U.S. Airways.
3: Robert, welcome. Chris, thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you all.
2: Robert, we always start our interviews with a self-introduction of sorts. So tell us briefly about your career in aviation, and then obviously, most notably, your role as a member and then chair of the NTSB. Well, thanks. I'll try to keep that brief. Uh, Ben,
3: I uh, started flying, uh, like many folks uh, started flying in high school. By the time I finished high school, I had uh, had my private pilot certificate and I flew all through college uh, working on my ratings and certificates. And um, I was very lucky in life. I got hired by Piedmont Airlines. Then Piedmont Airlines when I was 24 and had a wonderful career with Piedmont, of course, as you know very well, both of you know, Piedmont uh, was absorbed by U.S. Airways and spent 24 years there uh, at the airline.
1: And then uh, how did that get you to the NTSB eventually?
3: You know, I'm still asking myself that same question, but uh, actually, <laughs> the truth is uh, all through my airline career, I was um, uh, very interested in doing safety work. I had this burning desire to try and give something back to the profession and uh, and ever since I was in 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 college, I was going to the government documents library reading ntsb aircraft accident reports and i i had this sort of secret dream that one day i'd like to be one that uh, i'd like to to join the ntsb as a as a board member and uh so anyway i was doing work for uh, the pilots union alpa and doing safety work for the company as well and just sort of one thing led to another and i was at a, at a at a banquet in 2005 and a friend of mine came up to me and said you've always wanted to be on the ntsb there's an opening you've got to go for it and uh because uh, because Captain Bill Weeks pushed me, I said, well, OK, I'm go- going to go for it. And uh, it's a pretty treacherous path there to get the attention of the White House and go through all of that. But it did work out. So uh, very lucky.
1: So, Robert, while many of our listeners certainly know what the NTSP is, can you just remind everyone specifically what the mission and the responsibilities of the board are?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Chris, because there are a lot of people who really don't know exactly what the NTSB does. Uh, The NTSB is a is a federal agency charged by Congress to investigate transportation accidents, determine the probable cause and then issue safety recommendations to hopefully improve safety. But we are not. And I say we, it's still hard after 15 years to, uh, to not say we, but the NTSB is not a regulatory body. Uh, people think that, oh, can't you just do this or can't you just do that? Uh, but the NTSB um, doesn't have the authority to regulate or mandate the changes. Uh, they're strictly uh, issue recommendations and then push like the Dickens to get uh, those recommendation recipients to act on those recommendations.
2: Well, that's a terrific description, Robert. So tell us, you said that someone told you there was an opening. Are these posted? Um, I assume that you have to have certain prerequisites, having been a pilot maybe or a chief pilot or a safety officer. Like once you were told there's an opening... How many hurdles did you have to jump through and what did you have to do to actually get named to the? Party?
3: <laughs> <laughs> many many hurdles the biggest I think is getting the attention of the White House. Uh, there's a there's an office within within the White House the PPO presidential personnel office that uh, really is is like a recruiter. They're out looking for people to fill these various political slots. Uh, as you know, the Uh, NTSB board members and and their five board members, they are appointed by the president and confirmed by the US Senate. So there are all kinds of hurdles. Uh, Once you get the attention of the White House, I remember the young man calling me to say, I've just left the Oval Office and the president would like to move forward with your nomination. But then that's when the fun begins and uh, you've got a, an FBI background investigation. They, they're, they're delving. Everyone is delving into your finances, any possible ethical issues. Um, it's uh, it's quite a gauntlet there. And uh, I've been through that nomination and confirmation uh, process four times now. And uh, I think I'll just quit right there after four. <laughs> uh, in doing
1: my research, Robert, for this uh, discussion, I saw that you were on the board, I think, for 15 years, which is quite a tenure. Uh, so you probably have seen a lot in the context of aviation safety enhancements and, and opportunities over that time. Tell us what you think were the biggest changes in aviation safety during that period.
3: Great question, Chris. And I think that the Colgan air crash truly was a watershed event and that so many uh, changes uh, went into place as a result of that of that tragedy. Uh, the way that pilots are fundamentally trained, recruited, hired, maintain their proficiency, their work schedules, and that a whole new fatigue set of flight and duty time limitations came into play. So I think that that accident really, and I'll say it again, it was a watershed event for the commercial aviation industry.
1: Has the uh, industry been able to keep up with that? I mean, we we talk a lot on the show about pilot shortages. Do you think that things that were put in place after Colgan Air are, I don't want to say contributing in a bad way, but is that part of the pilot shortage equation that the industry is grappling with now?
3: Yeah, I do think that that's one of the unintended consequences of that. And I'm not saying whether or not it's good or bad, but I do think that that is contributing to a pilot shortage. It used to be that a pilot could get out of a, out of a very good aviation program such as uh, Embry Riddle or Purdue or University of North Dakota or many of the other programs that are, that are out there and, um, and, and get hired with, a, with an airline uh, without a whole lot of flying time. On one hand, that's, that's good. On the other hand, yes, I do think that it is uh, contributing to uh, the possible pilot shortage. So, yeah, I think that may be one of the unintended consequences.
1: Well, we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Robert Sumwalt. But first, a word of thanks to Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm that boasts a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's team has superior industry knowledge, state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com.
2: Well, Robert, you described nicely where the NTSB fits in the U.S. government, but it also seems, at least to an outsider like me, that the world counts on the NTSB as the agency has been used to investigate many accidents around the world. I remember when the Malaysia airplane disappeared, one of the first words I heard were NTSB to look into this and such. So how does the agency see its international relations and how much resource goes to supporting the world, not just U.S. aviation?
3: Well, that's a great question, Ben. And and by ICAO treaties, uh, international treaties between members member states of the International Civil Aviation Organization, and I think there's 193 member states right now, signatories to the ICAO Convention. Uh, if there is a an airline accident involving a U.S. manufactured, designed operated uh, or in, you know, in U.S. registered aircraft, if it occurs in another country, those countries are obligated to invite the NTSB to be an accredited representative to their investigation. And, and the reason for that, of course, is, is that if um, airplane crashes and say a Boeing aircraft crashes in Timbuktu, um, Timbuktu probably can't force Boeing to, to, to fix some sort of design issue. But the United States government sure can. And so the idea is is that by the NTSB being there, they're making sure that the U.S. interests are, are being looked after properly, that if there's a problem with that aircraft design, they can then go to their counterparts at the FAA And the FAA then could go back on the aircraft manufacturer and say, you've got to fix this. So that's the long and the short of it right there.
2: Well, that makes sense. And Robert, if I can ask a follow-up to that, in your tenure, were you also invited to help in cases where you weren't obligated by the ICAO procedures. Maybe it wasn't a U.S. manufactured airplane and it wasn't anywhere near the U.S., but they said, you guys are the gold standard. Would you help us? Did that happen while you were chairman? Great question, Ben. I can't specifically say yes, but I
3: would imagine it to be the case because you're right. The NTSB does have a a very good reputation w- worldwide. So uh, I would not be surprised if that uh, w- would have would have occurred.
1: So let's pull on that thread a little bit more, Robert, uh, with a couple of accidents that were international in nature, but we've all been living with uh, the aftermath here for quite a bit. What do you think the safety lessons are of the 737 MAX?
3: Wow. Uh, th- there are a lot of them, and I, I know that this will be a case study for many, many, many years, and um, you know, I've seen cases where the people at the top of an organization make statements and commitments, but they never envision that people throughout the food chain, throughout their organization, might have a different interpretation of of that mandate or that edict. I, I don't suspect, and and I don't know this factually. I don't suspect that anybody at the top of Boeing ever expected or wanted something like this to end up happening. But I think that somewhere throughout Boeing, people got the idea that you're actually going to be a hero if you can avoid uh, this aircraft being, uh, or training being required for this aircraft and, uh, and things like that. So, uh, I, you know, this is, a, uh, this is obviously having an airplane grounded for 20 months is uh, unprecedented. And uh, I think there's a lot of lessons right there, lessons that we've not fully
2: come to grip with as of right now. Robert, I'd like to ask a follow-up to that. I've always been a big fan of the free market. I believe competition makes everyone better. I believe it makes more innovative products. I think it's been generally good for, you know, without competition, Samsung and Apple phones wouldn't be as good as they both are, you know, (laughs) and all kinds of things. But the 737 MAX crashes sort of tested that for me in that what you just said, that Boeing felt a, compelled to not require a lot of training, I think was driven by the fact that the A320 to the A320neo was a simpler transition in the sense that Airbus successfully brought an upgraded version of the plane to market without needing all the extra training. And it seems to me that if Airbus had required 10 hours of simulator training to go from the CO to the NEO, that Boeing would have said, we can't allow more than 10 hours of simulator rather than no training. Am I wrong thinking that? Or, you know, does it change your view of just what I have generally thought is generally positive views of really strong competition?
3: Well, I, I I actually agree with you, Ben. And yeah, I'm, from what I understand, it was the competitive pressure to compete with Airbus was what uh, allowed the introduction of the new the new uh, engines on the 737 Max. And uh, of course, the airplane wasn't uh, didn't sit high enough off the ground to allow for those newer engines. And so they had to relocate the engines. And I think that's, I I think you're right. It really did boil down to corporate competitiveness between two very large, two giants of the commercial airline uh, fleet of the uh, aircraft manufacturers. So yeah, I agree with you there.
2: Well, thanks. And let's move on a bit from that. And like many sectors, the airline industry is working through a number of staffing issues and manpower shortages. I mean, American a couple of weeks ago canceled 2,000 flights and their excuse was because there were high winds at Dallas. And we all know that there have been winds in Dallas a lot that haven't caused 2,000 cancellations at a carrier like American. And a lot of the operational challenges that airlines have had this summer and going into the fall are because of staffing shortages. So as they as airlines ramp up post-pandemic hiring, what are the top 3 things they should be thinking about staffing-wise when it comes to safety?
3: I really think there are three things they've got to keep their keep their eye on, and the first is safety, the second is safety, and the third is safety and and that really is what it boils down to I think is that they've got to ensure that whatever they're doing they are doing uh, doing with safety foremost in mind and some of the airlines as you know Ben have have actually pulled back their schedule to have it more More match the reality of the current situation, and I think that uh, sometimes you've got to make those adjustments uh, to make sure that whatever product you're doing, you are able to deliver in a reliable fashion, uh, in a consistently reliable fashion, and uh, and doing it safely.
1: So, Robert, uh, before we let you go, I've got a two-parter that I want to kind of wrap up the conversation with, and it gets back to what's almost, unfortunately, like a weekly topic on this podcast, which is passenger disruptions. So, like I said, a two-parter, what do you think the safety implications are about what's been going on in the skies? And as a follow-up, is the FAA and DOT, are they doing enough to crack down on this matter?
3: Well, it certainly is a problem, and it needs to stop. And when you have flight attendants uh, get their teeth knocked out and when you get other passengers who are being harassed and and, and picked on, uh, this is unacceptable. And I think that the FAA administrator, Steve Dixon, has made it very clear that this is unacceptable. Uh, people will go to jail. There will be very heavy fines. And honestly, I'm not sure, sure what, more, what, what more they can be doing. Um You know, a lot of this apparently is stemming over mask mandates. Um, When you check in for a flight, you have to acknowledge that you're going to abide by all of those restrictions. And so there really is no excuse uh, for this type of behavior. I think most of the airlines have pulled back on alcohol sales, uh, which I think uh, a lot of this is precipitated by alcohol. So. Uh, it's unacceptable what's happening there. And the, uh, these people who are offenders, uh, they need uh, they need justice. Uh, that means uh, it needs to be a fair process. But if they're convicted, there needs to be severe consequences for them.
1: Do you have any concerns about the current kind of spate of bad behavior and what might happen with a, an evacuation of an aircraft with regard to have people kind of lost sense of their sensibility when they get on a plane?
3: Well, in some cases, it certainly appears to be the case and uh, sensibility and dignity uh, that has has been lost in in some cases. Um, And as it relates to an evacuation, um, people continue to want to take their luggage with them. It always amazes me how if somebody can get off of a burning airplane and be 50 feet from the airplane and turn around and take a picture and post it on Twitter, before all of the other passengers are safely off of that airplane. But uh, yeah, so we do have some issues here with the the behavior of some of the traveling public.
1: Well, Robert, you've been generous with your time. Uh, Safety and the airline business go hand in hand, as we often talk about. So it's great to get your perspective and share it with our listeners. I know they're going to enjoy this conversation.
3: Well, I've certainly enjoyed being with you, and I appreciate uh, being with you all. Be safe.
2: Be well and take care. Thank you so much, Robert. And thank you for your leadership of the NTSB while you were there. Well, gosh, I was absolutely
3: honored to be a part of the NTSB. Uh, I truly, uh, truly, truly
2: honored and privileged. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in just a moment.
0: The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at AirlinesConfidential.com.
2: Well, thanks again to Robert Sumwalt for sharing his thoughts on some very important topics related to aviation safety, which is so crucial to the airline business. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website, airlinesconfidential.com, and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Chris, our first question is from Michael in North Carolina. He sounds a little skeptical. I just listened to your latest podcast, which included the interview about the A220 Febreze. Ask Mr. Neilman where he intends to find pilots for his new operation. Does he have any ideas on that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, for your question and always for listening. Um. I don't know. I don't think David Nealman's going to have any trouble finding pilots. There might be an impact to other carriers who won't get pilots because they go to Breeze, but there aren't too many people betting against David Nealman. He's kind of laid out an interesting business plan and an exciting business plan. And so I think he'll have um, pretty good luck attracting pilots. We are hoping to have David as a guest at some point in the future, so we will be sure to ask that question. But Ben, I don't know if you had any other observations.
2: You're right, Chris. And as I've said before, I'm certainly not going to bet against David Nealman.
1: Ben, here's a question for you. It's from someone who asked to remain anonymous, and we're going to respect that. Guys, thanks for providing a forum for looking at issues facing the global airline industry. Your show on Wednesday, November 3rd, talked about the AA weekend meltdown from the week before. You made passing mention of management's mismanagement of the schedule and operation that made weather issues snowball into the 2,300-plus canceled flights we saw over that period. However, I would be curious if you can comment on a more fundamental issue with AA's current management. So the question to you both, should Doug Parker, Robert Isom, and Chief Operating Officer David Seymour be fired over this incident and over the steadily declining operational financial performance of the airline? to say nothing of what they do to their customers, which you can easily sum up in the Wall Street Journal's middle seat airline scorecard from 2018 to 2020. This takes DOT operational data and ranks the airlines. AA is last for 2019 and 2020 and second to last in 2018. Do you feel it's okay to just give the A leadership a pass each time that they stress how bad the weather is or whatever other excuse AA spokespeople point to? Or do you think the executives at the helm should be held to account? Tough question, Ben. I'll let you go first.
2: Well, I'm going to say I know why this questioner wants to remain anonymous. (laughs) 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 You know, it takes a lot to run an airline. And airlines management certainly should be held accountable for the airline the way the airline runs by its customers should be held accountable to its customer service by investors should be accountable to its financial performance by its employees it should be held accountable to how are we treated and you know are do we have good jobs and things like that and i think there's no question that American has struggled on a number of issues over the last number of years. I don't think that one weekend of 2300 cancellations is the reason to you know, clean house and bring in a whole new team. But I think some could make the case that American has underperformed Delta for sure. And United now too, who's being more aggressive and seems to be much more progressive on a number of issues. And so whether or not the board at American thinks that, and whether or not investors are strong enough to try to push that, or customers would vote with their feet and say, we're not going to fly American, which is kind of tough if you live in Dallas or Charlotte or Miami. right? And so I don't know, It's it's a tough issue. And I think that clearly that level of accountability has to matter. But whether or not there's enough at American to say that a wholesale change happens, I'm not sure. Before I hand it over to get your view, Chris, I want to talk about fantasy football for a minute. And you're going to think, well, (laughs) what's that non sequitur? One of the things that's become popular in fantasy football is what they call the WAR, the W-O-R, which is the wins over replacement. So what it says is rather than evaluate, is Nick Chubb the best running back, for example, that you could draft? What you really need to do is say, how much better is Nick Chubb than the person you could get if you don't get Nick Chubb. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that kind of comes to what it means. If you're going to clean house of a management team, you have to have a plan of what are you going to do and who's going to do better with that network, that set of labor contracts, that cost structure, that fleet plan, than the three people you mentioned are doing. Maybe there are people who could do much better, but you certainly wouldn't say, I'm gonna react to the maybe the last couple years of being last in Scott McCartney's report, right? (laughs) Or a weekend of lots of cancellations and say, you know, throw the bums out, that kind of attitude. But you also have to think about the long term of the enterprise. And if we do that, who's gonna come in and make it better? And there'd have to be a good answer to that, too. So maybe I didn't answer the question and maybe I said a lot and never (laughs) said what I really think, (laughs) but I'm going to hand it over to you, Chris, on that.
1: Well, Ben, to play off the football uh, thing, that's a perfect segue and a handoff for me to respond. So in short answer to the question, should these three be fired? I say the answer is no. And like you pointed out, you have to have a plan. You can't hold them responsible for everything. Up until probably a year ago, United and Americans' operational challenges were kind of about the same. So I think, as you pointed out, United and under Scott Kirby's leadership, they have been very aggressive and very bold and, and have been very articulate about how they're going to change the operation. And so they're setting a marker out there that it I think the American team needs to be watching very closely and, and matching and surpassing because they are setting some expectations uh, with investors. So until the board and investors get frustrated, I'm not sure there's anything the rest of us can do. And I don't think that they should be, I don't think they should go anyway, but clearly there's going to be more pressure on them, certainly as United improves their performance, the American underperformance is going to stand out even more
2: well i think that's right chris and customers always have a choice right you can say if i don't like the way american's treating me i can go fly another airline and sometimes that's harder based on where airlines fly but other airlines will try to win your business if one is not trying so hard or at least that's your view that they're not trying
1: so hard. And I I don't think you can underestimate that the American-U.S. airways merger, even though it is now almost a decade, it seems like, um, since it closed, it was a much more complicated one because of the independent unions that American and because of the integrations that took longer than, let's say, United and Continental merger, who had a, a little better overlap on unions. But, you know, that was a complicated merger and there was... Some, not I wouldn't say bitterness, but the, you know, it, but I think that there was a little more drama to that merger than the other two big mergers with regard to how the management team was going to come together. And so there was more work to be done at the beginning than perhaps the other two major mergers, although they all had hair on them as well with technology issues and the like. So it's a complicated business, and when you don't get it right, It really shows, and I think um, the pressure is going to be on the American team to step it up.
2: Well, I think that's right, Chris. And, you know, we had Vasu Raja on who did a great job, I think. But maybe after this conversation, maybe Doug or Robert or David would want to come on and talk about it, too.
1: We'd, We'd love to have them. Well, finer one is next, but first a word for TA Connections, which is paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. TA Connection procures over 30 million room nights annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with technology and AI-powered booking applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, this finer wine is from Jacob in Oneida, New York. I understand that I had to pay for my bags and my seat assignment on Allegiant, but even with that, my flight was cheaper than the Southwest option. But when I went through security, I heard a ding and I was told I was, quote, selected for special screening. I was asked to open my bag and they found a tiny pocket knife that I had forgot to remove. And I was basically accused of being a terrorist. Does this only happen to people who buy the cheapest tickets like I did?
2: Well, thank you, Jacob. And I'm sorry to say, but I think this is a big whine, actually. TSA has no idea what you paid for their tickets. (laughs) They have no idea, and they probably don't even care. In fact, I could imagine we might get a question someday from someone who said, I bought a very expensive ticket, and I heard that ding, and they looked at my bag. Is it only people who pay a lot of money that get their bags pulled, right? (laughs) And so TSA does two things. One, they randomly search people. And some of you, I'm sure, have been randomly pulled over and had them swipe over your hands and your luggage and things like that. And sometimes they look in your bags just from a random screening. And sometimes the person looking through the scanner sees something that they don't know what it is. So they pull the bag over and they say, we want to look in this bag. And sometimes it's... Not anything, and in this case, it was your small pocket knife. So I think they're just doing their job. Random screening makes sense, and when they see something they don't understand, I think it's perfectly appropriate that they pull the bag over and open it and look at it. So I think this is a wine. It's fine for you to buy cheap tickets, but that doesn't drive what TSA does at all.
1: Yeah, Ben, I was going to say, no, it doesn't happen to the people who just buy cheap tickets, but it does happen, hopefully, to the people who put a pocket knife in their suitcase. Yes. So that's the point of TSA. So so as we put away our trade tables for this week, uh, let me give my shout out to Alaska Airlines, which last week announced that they were eliminating single-use plastic cups and bottles on all their aircraft. These initiatives sound very easy, but are often a logistical challenge. We've been Working on it at Carnival Cruise Line for well over two years and making progress. But it's a steep hill to climb with some of the things you do in guest and passenger service. But good on you, Alaska. I hope uh, this continues to grow across the industry.
2: Great shout out, Chris. My shout out goes to the international traveler who comes to the U.S. to have a vacation. And I know that sounds crazy, but we just had a real busy summer in the airlines that really didn't have any of those people on our airplane, right? There no one who came from Germany to go to Disney World or came from Spain to go to the wine country in California or wherever they go or come from France to go to Las Vegas, right? And that travel is really important to the industry, but because of restrictions, they weren't able to come. But now there's relaxations on that. So here's the shout out to everyone in Europe and Asia who can now come to the U.S. again. Please come and please spend money in our country again. Thank you.
1: Uh, Great shout out. And uh, we're working on a guest uh, for next week, maybe to talk a little bit more about the importance of all this. With that, uh, let's say goodbye for the week and see you next week. Have a good one.
2: Have a great week, everyone. This
0: podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.